Chapter thirty seven of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter thirty seven How the White Company Came to Be Disbanded. Then uprose from the hill in the rugged Cantabrian valley a sound such as had not been heard in those parts before, nor was again until the streams which rippled amid the rocks had been frozen by over four hundred winters and thawed by as many returning springs. Deep and full and strong it thundered down the ravine, the fierce battle-call of a warrior race, the last stern welcome to whoso should join with them in that world-old game where the stake is death. Thrice it swelled forth, and thrice it sank away, echoing and reverberating amid the crags. Then with set faces the company rose up among the storm of stones, and looked down upon the thousands who sped swiftly up the slope against them. Horse and spear had been set aside, but on foot, with sword and battle-axe, their broad shields slung in front of them, the chivalry of Spain rushed to the attack. And now arose a struggle so fell, so long, so evenly sustained, that even now the memory of it is handed down amongst the Cantabrian mountaineers, and the ill-omened knoll is still pointed out by fathers to their children as the Altura de los Inglesos where the men from across the sea fought the great fight with the knights of the south. The last arrow was quickly shot, nor could the slingers hurl their stones, so close were friend and foe. From side to side stretched the thin line of the English, lightly armed and quick-footed, whilst against it stormed and raged the pressing throng of fiery Spaniards and of gallant Bretons. The clink of crossing sword-blades, the dull thudding of heavy blows, the panting and gasping of weary and wounded men, all rose together in a wild, long-drawn note, which swelled upwards to the ears of the wandering peasants, who looked down from the edges of the cliffs upon the swaying turmoil of the battle beneath them. Back and forth reeled the leopard banner, now borne up the slope by the rush and weight of the onslaught, now pushing downwards again, as Sir Nigel, Burley and Black Simon, with their veteran men-at-arms, flung themselves madly into the fray. Alan, at his lord's right hand, found himself swept hither and thither in the desperate struggle, exchanging savage thrusts one instant with a Spanish cavalier, and the next, torn away by the whirl of men, and dashed up against some new antagonist. To the right Sir Oliver, Aylward, Hordle John, and the bowmen of the company, fought furiously against the monkish knights of Santiago, who were led up the hill by their prior, a great deep-chested man who wore a brown monastic habit over his suit of mail. Three archers he slew in three giant strokes, but Sir Oliver flung his arms around him, and the two, staggering and straining, reeled backwards and fell, locked in each other's grasp over the edge of the steep cliff which flanked the hill. In vain his knights stormed and raved against the thin line which barred their path. The sword of Aylward and the great axe of John gleamed in the forefront of the battle, and huge, jagged pieces of rock, hurled by the strong arms of the bowmen, crashed and hurtled amid their ranks. Slowly they gave back down the hill, 
the archers still hanging upon their skirts, with a long litter of writhing and twisted figures to mark the course which they had taken. At the same instant the Welshman upon the left, led on by the Scotch Earl, had charged out from among the rocks which sheltered them, and by the fury of their outfall had driven the Spaniards in front of them in headlong flight down the hill. In the centre only things seemed to be going ill with the defenders. Black Simon was down, dying as he would have wished to have died, like a grim old wolf in its lair with a ring of his slain around him. Twice Sir Nigel had been overborne, and twice Alan had fought over him until he had staggered to his feet once more. Burley lay senseless, stunned by a blow from a mace, and half of the men-at-arms lay littered upon the ground around him. Sir Nigel's shield was broken, his crest shorn, his armour cut and smashed, and the visor torn from his helmet. Yet he sprang hither and thither with light foot and ready hand, engaging two Bretons and a Spaniard at the same instant, thrusting, stooping, dashing in, springing out, while Alan still fought by his side, stemming with a handful of men the fierce tide which surged up against them. Yet it would have fared ill with them had not the archers from either side closed in upon the flanks of the attackers, and pressed them very slowly and foot by foot down the long slope, until they were on the plain once more, where their fellows were already rallying for a fresh assault. But terrible indeed was the cost at which the last man had been repelled. Of the three hundred and seventy men who held the crest, one hundred and seventy-two were left standing many of whom were sorely wounded and weak from loss of blood. Sir Oliver Butsthorn, Sir Richard Corston, Sir Simon Burley, Black Simon, Johnston, a hundred and fifty archers and forty-seven men-at-arms had fallen, while the pitiless hail of stones was already whizzing and piping once more about their ears, threatening every instant to further reduce their numbers. Sir Nigel looked about him at his shattered ranks, and his face flushed with a soldier's pride. "'By St. Paul!' he cried. "'I have fought in many a little bickering, but never one that I would be more loath to have missed than this. But you are wounded, Alan.' "'It is not,' answered the squire, staunching the blood which dripped from a sword-cut across his forehead. "'These gentlemen of Spain seem to be most courteous and worthy people.' I see that they are already forming to continue this debate with us. Form up the bowmen two deep instead of four. By my faith, some very brave men have gone from amongst us. Aylward, you are a trusty soldier, for all that your shoulder has never felt accolade, nor your heels worn the golden spurs. Do you take charge of the right? I will hold the centre, and you, my lord of Angus, the left. Ho, oh, for Sir Samkin Aylward! cried a rough voice among the archers, and a roar of laughter greeted their new leader. "'By my hilt,' said the old bowman, "'I never thought to lead a wing in a stricken field. Stand close, comrade, for by these finger-bones we must play the man this day.' "'Come hither, Alan,' said Sir Nigel, walking back to the edge of the cliff, which formed the rear of their position. "'And you, Norbury,' he continued, beckoning to the squire of Sir Oliver, "'do you also come here?' The two squires hurried across to him and the three stood looking down into the rocky ravine which lay a hundred and fifty feet beneath them the prince must hear of how things are with us said the knight another outfall we may withstand but they are many and we are few so that the time must come when we can no longer form a line across the hill yet if help were brought us we might hold the crest until it comes see yonder horses which stray among the rocks beneath us 
"'I see them, my fair lord. "'And see yonder path which winds along the hill upon the further end of the valley. "'I see it. "'Were you on those horses and riding up yonder track, steep and rough as it is, "'I think that you might gain the valley beyond, then on to the prince, and tell him how we fare. "'But, my fair lord, how can we hope to reach the horses?' asked Norbury. Mm, "'Ye cannot go round to them, for they would be upon ye, ere ye could come down to them. Mm, "'Think ye that ye have heart enough to clamber down this cliff? "'Had we but a rope? "'There is one here. It is but a hundred feet long, "'and for the rest you must trust to God and to your fingers. "'Can you try it, Alan?' "'With all my heart, my dear lord. "'But how can I leave you in such a strait? "'Nay, it is to serve me that you go.' "'And you, Norbury?' The silent squire said nothing, but he took up the rope, and, having examined it, he tied one end firmly around a projecting rock. Then he cast off his breastplate, thigh-pieces, and greaves, while Alan followed his example. "'Tell Chandos, or Calverley, or Knowles, should the prince have gone forward,' cried Sir Nigel. "'Now may God speed ye, for ye are brave and worthy men.' It was, indeed— a task which might make the heart of the bravest sink within him. The thin cord dangling down the face of the brown cliff seemed from above to reach little more than halfway down it. Beyond stretched the rugged rock, wet and shining, with a green tuft here and there thrusting out from it, but little sign of ridge or foothold. Far below the jagged points of the boulders bristled up, dark and menacing. Norbury, tugged thrice with all his strength upon the cord, and then lowered himself over the edge, while a hundred anxious faces peered over at him as he slowly clambered downwards to the end of the rope. Twice he stretched out his foot, and twice he failed to reach the point at which he aimed, but even as he swung himself for a third effort, a stone from a sling buzzed like a wasp from amid the rocks and struck him full upon the side of his head. His grasp relaxed, his feet slipped, and in an instant he was a crushed and mangled corpse upon the sharp ridges beneath him. "'If I have no better fortune,' said Alan, leading Sir Nigel aside, "'I pray you, my dear lord, that you will give my humble service to the Lady Maud, and say to her that I was ever her true servant and most unworthy cavalier.' The old knight said no word, but he put a hand on either shoulder and kissed his squire, with the tears shining in his eyes. Alan sprang to the rope, and sliding swiftly down, soon found himself at its extremity. From above it seemed as though rope and cliff were well-nigh touching, but now, when swinging a hundred feet down, the squire found that he could scarce reach the face of the rock with his foot, and that it was as smooth as glass, with no resting-place where a mouse could stand. Some three feet lower, however, his eye lit upon a long, jagged crack, which slanted downwards, and this he must reach if he would save not only his own poor life, but that of the eight-score men above him. Yet it were madness to spring for that narrow slit with naught but the wet, smooth rock to cling to. He swung for a moment, full of thought, and even as he hung there another of the hellish stones sang through his curls and struck a chip from the face of the cliff. Up he clambered a few feet drew up the loose end after him, unslung his belt, held on with knee and with elbow while he spliced the long, tough, leathern belt to the end of the cord, then lowering himself as far as he could go, 
he swung backwards and forwards until his hand reached the crack, when he left the rope and clung to the face of the cliff. Another stone struck him on the side, and he heard a sound like a breaking stick, with a keen stabbing pain which shot through his chest. Yet it was no time now to think of pain or ache. There was his lord and his eight-score comrades, and they must be plucked from the jaws of death. On he clambered, with his hand shuffling down the long, sloping crack, sometimes bearing all his weight upon his arms, at others finding some small shelf or tuft on which to rest his foot. Would he never pass over that fifty feet? He dared not look down, and could but grope slowly onwards, his face to the cliff, his fingers clutching, his feet scraping and feeling for a support. Every vein and crack and mottling of that face of rock remained forever stamped upon his memory. At last, however, his foot came upon a broad resting-place, and he ventured to cast a glance downward. Thank God! he had reached the highest of those fatal pinnacles on which his comrade had fallen. Quickly now he sprang from rock to rock, until his feet were on the ground, and he had his hand stretched out for the horse's rein, when a sling-stone struck him upon the head, and he dropped senseless upon the ground. An evil blow it was for Alan, but a worse one still for him who struck it. The Spanish slinger, seeing the youth lie slain, and judging from his dress that he was no common man, rushed forward to plunder him, knowing well that the bowmen above him had expended their last shaft. He was still three paces, however, from his victim's side, when John, upon the cliff above, plucked up a huge boulder, and, poising it for an instant, dropped it with fatal aim upon the slinger beneath him. It struck upon his shoulder, and hurled him, crushed and screaming, to the ground, while Alan, recalled to his senses by these shrill cries in his very ear, staggered on to his feet, and gazed wildly about him. His eyes fell upon the horses, grazing upon the scanty pasture, and in an instant all had come back to him, his mission, his comrades, the need for haste. He was dizzy, sick, faint, but he must not die, and he must not tarry, for his life meant many lives that day. In an instant he was in his saddle and spurring down the valley. Loud rang the swift charger's hooves over rock and reef, while the fire flew from the stroke of iron, and the loose stones showered up behind him. But his head was whirling round, the blood was gushing from his brow, his temple, his mouth, ever keener and sharper was the deadly pain which shot like a red-hot arrow through his side. He felt that his eye was glazing, his senses slipping from him his grasp upon the reins relaxing, then, with one mighty effort, he called upon all his strength for a single minute. Stooping down, he loosened the stirrup-straps, bound his knees tightly to the saddle-flaps, twisted his hands in the bridle, and then, putting the gallant horse's head for the mountain path, he dashed the spurs in and fell forward, fainting with his face buried in the coarse black mane. Little could he ever remember of that wild ride. Half-conscious, but ever with the one thought beating in his mind, he goaded the horse onwards, rushing swiftly down steep ravines, over huge boulders, along the edges of black abysses. Dim memories he had of beetling cliffs, of a group of huts with wandering faces at the doors, of foaming, clattering water, and of a bristle of mountain beaches. Once, ere he had ridden far, he heard behind him three deep, sullen shouts, which told him that his comrades had set their faces to the foe once more. Then all was blank, until he woke, 
to find kindly blue English eyes peering down upon him, and to hear the blessed sound of his country's speech. They were but a foraging party, a hundred archers, and as many men-at-arms, but their leader was Sir Hugh Calverley, and he was not a man to bide idle when good blows were to be had not three leagues from him. A scout was sent flying with a message to the camp, and Sir Hugh, with his two hundred men, thundered off to the rescue. With them went Alan, still bound to his saddle, still dripping with blood, and swooning and recovering, and swooning once again. On they rode, and on, until at last, topping a ridge, they looked down upon the fateful valley. Alas and alas for the sight that met their eyes! There beneath them was the blood-bathed hill, and from the highest pinnacle there flaunted the yellow and white banner, with the lions and the towers of the royal house of Castile. Up the long slope rushed ranks and ranks of men, exultant, shouting with waving pennons and brandished arms. Over the whole summit were dense throngs of knights, with no enemy that could be seen to face them, save only that at one corner of the plateau an eddy and swirl amid the crowded mess seemed to show that all resistance was not yet at an end. At the sight a deep groan of rage and of despair went up from the baffled rescuers, and spurring on their horses they clattered down the long and winding path which led to the valley beneath. But they were too late to avenge, as they had been too late to save. Long ere they could gain the level ground, the Spaniards, seeing them riding swiftly amid the rocks and being ignorant of their numbers, drew off from the captured hill, and having secured their few prisoners, rode slowly in a long column, with drum-beating and cymbal-clashing out of the valley. Their rear ranks were already passing out of sight ere the newcomers were urging their panting, foaming horses up the slope which had been the scene of that long-drawn and bloody fight. And a fearsome sight it was that met their eyes. Across the lower end lay the dense heap of men and horses where the first arrow-storm had burst. Above, the bodies of the dead and the dying, French, Spanish, and Aragonese, lay thick and thicker, until they covered the whole ground two and three deep in one dreadful tangle of slaughter. Above them lay the Englishmen, in their lines, even as they had stood, and high yet upon the plateau a wild medley of the dead of all nations, where the last deadly grapple had left them. In the further corner, under the shadow of a great rock, there crouched seven bowmen, with great John in the centre of them, all wounded, weary, and in sorry case, but still unconquered, with their blood-stained weapons waving and their voices ringing a welcome to their countrymen. Alan rode across to John, while Sir Hugh Calverley followed close behind him. "'By St. George!' cried Sir Hugh. "'I have never seen signs of so stern a fight, and I am right glad that we have been in time to save you.' "'You have saved more than us,' said John, pointing to the banner which leaned against the rock behind him. "'You have done nobly,' cried the old free companion, gazing with a soldier's admiration at the huge frame and bold face of the archer. "'But why is it, my good fellow, that you sit upon this man?' Oh, "'By the rood, I had forgot him,' John answered, rising and dragging from under him no less a person than the Spanish caballero, Don Diego Alvarez. "'This man, my fair lord, means to me a new house, ten cows, or one bull, if it be but a little one, a grindstone, and I know what besides. 
so that I thought it well to sit upon him, lest he should take a fancy to leave me. "'Tell me, John,' cried Alan faintly, "'where is my dear lord, Sir Nigel Loring?' "'He is dead, I fear. I saw them throw his body across a horse and ride away with it, but I fear the life had gone from him. "'Now woe worth me! And where is Aylward?' He sprang upon a riderless horse, and rode after Sir Nigel to save him. I saw them throng about him, and he is either taken or slain. "'Blow the bugles!' cried Sir Hugh, with a scowling brow. "'We must back to camp, and ere three days I trust that we may see these Spaniards again. I would fain have you all in my company.' "'We are of the White Company, my fair lord,' said John. "'Nay, the White Company is here disbanded.' answered Sir Hugh solemnly, looking around him at the lines of silent figures. Look to the brave squire, for I fear that he will never see the sun rise again. End of chapter 37